I think now that paramedic practice has accelerated at a rate that probably was fairly unpredictable back then, and we now look at a wide range of paramedics working in practices such as emergency departments within general practice, within out-of-hours services, within palliative care, within intensive care units, and indeed on general wards, then I think there is a very, very good argument to be made that paramedics require access to exactly the same range of drugs as our nursing and pharmacist colleagues. Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this episode, we're speaking on non-medical prescribing for paramedics with Dave Rivardi. So David Rivardi is a dual qualified pharmacist and paramedic and currently works as a specialist practitioner for EMAS. He also works one day a week for the College of Paramedics, advising the College on the latest uh, legislation within prescribing and medicines management. So in this episode, what I wanted to do really is ask David around the current situation on prescribing rights for paramedics and also just examine the twists and turns uh, over the last 10 years and some of the seminal moments such as public consultation of controlled drugs and some of the turning points in legislation by the Commission for Human Medicines in 2018. We also wanted to examine exactly where the profession is is at in relation to permission to prescribe and also wanted to dig into the caveat of advanced practice, what double unlock is, what it means, uh, who the ACMD are and also the list of controlled drugs on the register. We also just wanted to look at the joint letter which has recently been submitted uh, to the government by the Royal College of GPs and the College of Paramedics and look at the strategy for the full list of CDs um, which potentially will be administered by paramedics. So welcome to the podcast Dave. Thank you very much and thank you for inviting me. That's an absolute pleasure, and it's great to uh, great to have you on. Maybe we could start, if possible, by looking at just a short history of where we are currently, uh, where we've come from, and some of the seminal moments uh, over the sort of past 10 to 15 years. Certainly. So, I mean, if we go right back to the beginning, we're looking back really as far back as 1999 and things like the Cram Report, which looked to lay the pavings down for non-medical prescribing for originally the nursing and pharmacist professions. Um, paramedicine and allied health professions kind of came online around 2015 with a public consultation that laid forward the foundations, if you like, for paramedic prescribing. That was obviously well supported um, and within a public consultation that goes out to, to anybody, anybody could comment on that. And fortunately, the comments back were quite favourable. So in so the public consultation closed in 2015 um, towards the autumn time, and that proposal was then taken to the Committee for Human Medicines. Um, the initial proposal was rejected in 2015, which meant that the college had to go back and examine why the proposal had been rejected. And to cover the points, and we will, we will talk about advanced practice later on, but one of the concerns raised by CHM was around the fact that the paramedic profession did not really have any definition for advanced practice. There was no standards at the time to define an advanced practitioner, and the CHM raised that as a point of concern. So the college looked at the proposal, redrafted, drafted up prescribing guidelines for paramedics to include 
advanced practice and we took that back to CHM in 2017 and then it was accepted at that point. So from there, with the CHM recommendation, the legislation then went to ministers where it was approved in Parliament um, and it was passed in September, 20, uh, sorry, passed in 2018, it was passed on the 4th, uh, sorry, the 1st of April, um, with the first paramedic prescribers looking to qualify from the universities in September 2018. Obviously, once the legislation was passed, we had to look at things like HEPC then had to approve prescribing courses for the universities to mean that when paramedics graduate from them courses, they could be annotated onto the register. And then in line with the change legislation, the Human Medicines Regulations 2012 could then become authorised prescribers. We took the proposal for the limited list, and we will talk about that later, why the particular drugs were chosen. So in 2019, we took the limited list to the um, Advisory Committee for the Misuse of Drugs, the ACMD. And again, we'll explain what the ACMD is about and why that's important and why that's needed for controlled drugs. The ACMD accepted um, our proposal for the limited list of controlled drugs, um, and that approval is needed in order for it to go forward to the Home Office to implement that change. And in 2022, in fact, just a few weeks ago, the ministers finally accepted the ACMD recommendations. Thinking that um, the ACMD uh, accepted the recommendations for the five drugs, and we'll, like you said, dig into that shortly. But Dave, maybe could you just unpack the um, the Commission for Human Medicines and indeed the ACMD a little, little bit more, um, who they are and indeed what they what they do. Certainly. So the so the Commission for Human Medicines is a non-executive department, if you like, of, of the Department of Health and Social um, Services. So they're generally a, a committee of experts who will sit and consider evidence um, for, and it's generally around medication for the UK. So they'll look at things like licensing, imports, exports of medication. But what they also do is consider things around all aspects of medicine's use. So in particular, in our case, they were looking at would we, would they as a group approve a new group of professionals, i.e. paramedics, the ability to prescribe? And when they're making decisions like this, what they're looking at is things like public interest and public safety. And I think that was one of the reasons why the initial proposal was, was rejected. They didn't feel that necessarily that it was safe to allow paramedics to prescribe at that point. And therefore, we had to go back. And this was before I joined the college. But, you know, thanks to the work of my predecessors, I actually went back with a much more robust proposal. And hence why the college's guidelines at the time around prescribing were quite, shall we say, rigid around advanced practice. And, and I know that that's something that does cause some controversy, some angst with some paramedics about why we've got that in place. But that was absolutely so that the Commission of Human Medicines could be assured that paramedics could prescribe in a safe manner. Um, coming on to the ACMDs, that's the Advisory Committee for the Misuse of Drugs. <clears throat> These are actually a, a branch of the, of the Home Office, um, and this group exists to advise on the misuse, abuse, and misdirection of substances that could be abused, potentially 
So they they have another thing. So they they are much more concerned about the illicit use of drugs and the criminal use of drugs. And they advise the Home Office on changes to the Misuse of Drugs Act and the Misuse of Drugs Regulations, which actually sits under the under the executive of, of the Home Office. So in order to make amendments to the Misuse of Drugs Act or the Misuse of Drugs Regulations, and we'll come on to this later on with the, with the so-called double unlock, the Home Office listens to the guidance of ACMD. So without ACMD's recommendation for the limited list of controlled drugs, that would not go forward and paramedics would not be allowed to independently prescribe from the limited list of controlled drugs that was proposed. Looking at advanced practice for a minute, uh, David, and the caveat of of advanced practice being sort of the first card array of staff to potentially get uh, prescribing rights. And looking at the, the fact that they are doing level seven modules and indeed um, sort of studying at uh, a higher a higher level, how do you how do you sort of um, envisage advanced practice sort of starting to roll it out would it would it be on a modular basis a, a, a level seven module in, in in prescribing and indeed um would it be accessible to all paramedics in in your in your thoughts so i think the the advanced practice thing is very important as i've already said earlier on it, it was the key to actually allowing paramedics to prescribe in the first place was given that reassurance to CHM to carry advanced practice. I feel advanced practice is really important. And, and I often, when I explain this to people, I kind of say I map it against the patient journey. So if we, if we consider a typical patient consultation, so, you know, the patient will come in, introduce yourself, but what you will do with that patient is you will take a comprehensive history. You will carry out a, appropriate targeted physical examination or blood tests or whatever other examination you want to do, you will then have to reach a diagnosis and differential diagnosis for that patient before you actually prescribe the treatment or issue the treatment. So to me, the advanced practice follows through kind of that module. So are you confident and comfortable at taking a comprehensive history? Are you confident and comfortable at taking and carrying out that appropriate targeted examination of the patient? And probably the most important thing is, are you comfortable to reach a diagnosis and differential diagnosis before you actually issue the prescription? So I think that any advanced practice kind of module should really follow that mapping along. And that's one of the reasons why the recommendations is that you have previous level seven modules in either physical examination, um, consultation skills or diagnostics before you reach the prescribing and actually issue the prescribing. Because to me, that is the last step on the patient's journey. It's really interesting you say that actually, because like you said, a comprehensive history, a thorough and detailed assessment, and then a whole list of differentials and indeed red flags um, is seems a sensible sort of sequential approach to any, any patient's consultation really and uh especially like you said if there's going to be controlled drugs uh, in in potentially given to a to a patient it seems uh, sensible that those would be the modules or indeed the foundations of, of of education so just looking 
um, David at Double Unlock, because we briefly mentioned Double Unlock and um, um, what it might mean for paramedic practice. Could you maybe speak to what indeed Double Unlock is and, and how it might affect paramedic practice? Certainly. So when we refer to Double Unlock, so the UK medicines legislation falls under two main branches, if you like. So we've got the misuse of drugs regulations, which are overseen by the Home Office, and we have the um, human medicines regulations, which are overseen by the Department of Health. In order to allow the prescribing of controlled drugs and indeed dispensing of controlled drugs and laws around kind of possession and stuff, what's required is an amendment to both laws. So in other words, both laws need to be, in inverted commas, unlocked. So the the initial unlock, if you like, happened in 2018 when the legislation was passed for the amendment of the human medicines regulation. So that was the first unlock, if you like, that allowed paramedics to independently prescribe all medication, in other words, kind of GSLs, so general sales medications, pharmacy medications, and prescription-only medications. Because controlled drug legislation falls under the Misuse of Drugs Regulations and Acts, that actually requires amendment of the Misuse of Drugs Regulations, which falls under the guise of the Home Office. So that, if you like, is the double unlock. So we've we've had the first unlock, so that was 2018. And on the back of the Minister's recommendations that was made a few weeks ago, we're waiting, if you like, for the second unlock, which will unlock both laws and allow paramedics to prescribe and have dispensed um, from the limited list of controlled drugs. So looking at that limited list of controlled drugs, actually, for a minute, um, so it involves oral and injectable morphine, um, oral and injectable diazepam, midazolam via sort of oral mucosal and inject- injection route, looking at uh, IM and IV, lorazepam, and finally codeine ph- uh, phosphate. Could you maybe speak to why these five uh, were chosen initially and indeed... Um, I suppose that the, the, the larger question is, is there going to be a, a, a larger or indeed fuller list of uh, controlled drugs that, that paramedics will have access to in the future? Certainly. So the original list, and a slight, slight disclaimer here, um, this was before my time with, at the college, in fact, indeed before my time when I was a paramedic. So this list goes back to the original public consultation that was launched in 2015 and was in line at the time with the limited list of controlled drugs recommended for use by other allied health professionals. So very much if we look back to 2015 and where paramedic practice was at the time, it was unfortunately very much centred around kind of ambulance services and what ambulance services and advanced practitioners within ambulance services may be doing with very, very few paramedics at the time working you know, really outside of that scope. So, you know, back in 2015, very few paramedics, if any, were working in other roles such as GP practices and, you know, emergency departments. So that that is where that list, I think, has come from. So if we look at those drugs, they're very much around, you know, acute treatment of patients and, you know, in the terms of codeine, perhaps some analgesics that, that can be used by paramedics to facilitate kind of on-scene discharge and adequate analgesia for patients. Of course, one of the questions that's raised is, well, why this list, you know, paramedics can use most of these drugs already out on exemption or on PGD. Um, and the advantage to prescribe carries other advantages on top of, you know, just normal PGDs 
and or our exemption. So, for example, as a prescriber, you can give direction for someone else to administer the medication, whereas on a PGD and an exemption, you don't have the legal authority to do that. And in answer to your second question, do we think there should be a more comprehensive list? Yes, absolutely. I think now that paramedic practice has accelerated at a rate that probably was fairly unpredictable back then, and we now look at a wide range of paramedics working in practices such as emergency departments within general practice, within out-of-hours services, within palliative care, within intensive care units, and indeed on general wards, then I think there is a very, very good argument to be made that paramedics require access to exactly the same range of drugs as our nursing and pharmacist colleagues. So, David, can we just pivot slightly and look at the recent joint letter with the Royal College of GPs that was submitted to Parliament earlier this year? So how, how, how helpful have they been? And indeed, could you maybe speak to how paramedic practice has grown adjacent to GP practice? Certainly. So one of the, one of the strategies that I decided to engage was to seek support from other Royal Colleges and professional bodies to get some momentum behind the, you know, the the legislation for the limited list of controlled drugs. At the time, it had sat with the Home Office, um, with them for a time. You know, we had written to the Home Office. We did have correspondence with the Home Office, um, usually via NHS England, as is the protocol. And we felt that that it wasn't really progressing, and that was to the detriment. Um, of, of patients, of, of paramedics in practice. And we opened up a dialogue initially with the Royal College of General Practitioners just to see if we could gain some support because obviously we have a large number of paramedics working in general practice. And just to get the view of the Royal Colleges, how that was affecting their members as GPs by increasing workload on them and also how it was affecting patient care, in other words, because patients were you know experiencing a delay in receiving medication, especially when paramedics were carrying out the home visiting services, which they commonly do for general practitioners. You know, we identified that was a particular issue. A paramedic could visit someone, let's say a palliative care patient, they were unable to prescribe medication for them. They were having to return to the surgery to get the GP to issue a prescription to then have to get that prescription back to the patient. Um, so we approached the Royal College of General Practitioners first and got really positive feedback and they agreed to, to send a joint letter between themselves and the college um, to the Department of Health and to the Home Office, um, you know, just expressing disappointment in the in the in the delays. Um, a few weeks later, we did luckily find out that the Home Office had accepted the recommendation of ACMD. I'm also doing a piece of work at the minute. We want to engage with the other Royal Colleges because I feel this is really important to gain the support and, and kind of coming on to the next question for the future for unlocking the full strategy of CDs for paramedics. Indeed, and I think it, there'll be a direct bearing on the Royal College of Emergency Medicine and indeed yes. um, to, you know, other referral services um, because they will sort of, they, they are adjacent to paramedic practice and indeed uh, there's, a, a, there's a sort of a sequential handover of, of patients which they will, they will pick up. So I absolutely agree. Um, there's sort of some co-aligned work with other Royal Colleges. So maybe, absolutely, could we maybe speak to um, the strategy or indeed your strategy for unlocking uh, the full list of, of controlled drugs for paramedics? Certainly. So I think the initial strategy is that we need 
we need a little bit of patience. I'm afraid it, it, this will this process will take a while. Um, it took a while for the professions as well. I often get feedback, constructive criticism, you know, comparing ourselves to nurses and pharmacists. I, I don't feel that's useful. We're, we're in a different position to those two professions. And I think what's very important is that we focus on what paramedics do, what paramedics can do, and how we prove what paramedics do is safe rather than comparisons with other professions. One of the strategies I think that we need to prove is, firstly, we need to prove that there is a need for this. And through the college's website, which I'll provide you with a link later, um, I'm asking for paramedics of examples where the lack of ability to prescribe controlled drugs is, you know, either delaying patient care or potentially compromising patient care. And I've actually put a template up there. And I've started to receive some some good examples. And I feel that's quite an important strategy, you know, to prove the need for that. I think the second thing is that we need to prove that we are safe to prescribe controlled drugs. And I think as we get increasing evidence from the limited list, we'll be able to prove that. Um, you know, we need to be able to prove that not just safety, but there is no, you know, abuse, misuse or misdirection of controlled drugs going on. Uh, because that will provide the assurance to ACMD. And I think we also need to gather the support, as I alluded to earlier, of, of Royal Colleges and patient groups. And, and certainly some of the groups I've started talking to, um, you know, the palliative care networks are certainly very interested in this because obviously they have a, a, a big interest in getting controlled drugs to patients in the right amount of time and the ability to prescribe that would be really useful. And in addition, just to the full list of controlled drugs, paramedics at the minute are unable to prescribe any unlicensed medication. I know we've got a question about that later on, and, and sorry, I'll, I'll jump to that later. But again, that's something that we need to add. Absolutely, and it's it, it's really interesting because, like you said, the 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 end user, i.e., the the patient. Uh, indeed is the one that suffers and and right from an end of life care perspective and indeed from critical care perspective and everything down acute medicine it, 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 there is there, there'll be ramifications and 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 effects but hopefully it will uh, save a lot of bureaucracy and indeed um uh, paperwork but also uh, um a lot of delays within within uh treatment and indeed uh prescribing of of appropriate and i think that's the key word there is as as you were emphasizing appropriate control drugs which uh which can both be evidenced and indeed there is a a decision-making process which can be uh, shown to to other agencies or indeed regulatory agencies such as the ACMD uh, that it, that these drugs are being given given in in an appropriate fashion and and there's a governance framework around it within and indeed within advanced practice. Um, um my next question really is around there is sort of pockets of um of uh, the country indeed private air ambulance or indeed charitable air ambulance um, um, non-for-profits which are starting to put their practitioners through uh, prescribing right modules um, sort of level seven modules such as air ambulance charities could you maybe just speak to your thoughts on that because I, I I've got a colleague within Wales which is prescribing blood now to patients which which is sort of appropriately need it what's what's your perspective on on some of these sort of smaller more nimble charities which are already pressing ahead um I, I think it's to be strongly encouraged I I had an interesting conversation with a friend who's a critical care paramedic, and I did originally question 
you know, prescribing in in critical care, would the needs of the patient be better served by, say, for example, patient group directions, director, sorry, um, and and actually having having kind of reflected about this, then one thing that the ability of of prescribing in critical care allows you to do, as I alluded to earlier, it allows you to give directions for somebody else to administer the medication, which I think in a critical care setting is really important. Um, because obviously, you know, if we're looking at a critically ill patient, then maybe it's the ability of the most skilled practitioner who's prescribing and managing the airway <clears throat> to direct a colleague to administer medication would, would be very useful. It also gets around the kind of limitations of the PGD as well. If you are, you know, obviously, as you're aware, within paramedic practice, it's not black and white. It's 50 shades of grey. And you come to a situation where the PGD is not appropriate, um, then obviously the prescribing gives you much greater ability to act dynamically in that situation. It also puts a little bit more emphasis and responsibility to the individual practitioner um, rather than the organisation when the PGDs are written, because that's obviously shared responsibility between the organisation, the signatories and the practitioner using the PGD. Um, so, yes, I, I, yeah, I think... Paramedic prescribing in all aspects of practice is is, is a good, useful um, tool to carry the profession forward, and I think cements that kind of those pillars of advanced practice. Looking at, we're just going to come on to actually uh, the difference between controlled and uncontrolled drugs, and and maybe just putting some definitions behind them. But just I think something we haven't said, or indeed I haven't mentioned around um, around advanced practice and indeed some of these air ambulance charities and uh, critical care uh, schemes is that they are um, hopefully well-governed si uh, systems. And with governance comes the hot debrief, comes the cold, or indeed the, the more detailed case review uh, that is starting to become more clinical pathology based. So they're getting clinical pathologists in to see, you know, what indeed uh, maybe killed a patient. But there's, there's real scrutiny around these systems and, and evidence scrutiny, um, which hopefully also um, improves the case for uh, paramedic prescribing that it's that you know there's there's well-governed uh, systems in place and indeed um, decision making so that, that, that get decision making can be analyzed retrospectively and and evidenced um, it, would you would you in, in, in agree with that statement absolutely i think you know kind of switching my head from my kind of paramedic head to my pharmacist head and i think you know, it's really important that the that everyone recognises the role of the pharmacist as the drug expert, and you know, utilises the 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 ability that pharmacists have got to kind of analyse in terms of you know the selection of drug, the dose of drug given, the situation it's been given in, you know, the, and the governance and structure around where these drugs are used and what situations they're used, and even mundane things such as how these drugs are stored to make sure they are actually effective when they're given to the patients. I think it's really, really important. And I think, you know, traditionally, the pharmacist has not, you know, been seen as part of, um, you know, the pre-hospital care team. And I think with the increase in use of prescribing within the pre-hospital and critical care environment, I think the role of the pharmacist is going to become significantly more important. I am aware that some... Air ambulance charities do employ pharmacists. In fact, one of my colleagues is employed by one. Other charities, I'm not sure about the pharmacy input. Um, some charities will kind of ad hocly employ pharmacists as they need them. But I think from my point of view, with, with kind of both heads on, I think it's quite important that, that pharmacists do have some input into the process. 
because they bring a different perspective to what a paramedic or a doctor will bring in terms of governance around the use of the drugs. So, you know, pharmacists tend to be very good at kind of analysing and scrutinising that, drawing up appropriate protocols for use of drugs, when they should be used, how they shouldn't be used, how they should be stored. You know, and as I say, even the Monday, things like stock rotation, appropriate temperature control. Absolutely. And I think that would be a key piece of the governance process within case review as well, that there would be a pharmacist potentially in, in the case review process. So they could just question, you know, around the indications and contraindications and, and, and what the, what the actual case scenario was. So that's, a, I think that's a really key step, actually, David. David, just looking for a second, um, around, uh, unlicensed versus off-licensed drugs. Could you maybe differentiate between the two and indeed maybe give some examples? Certainly. So the, the, the this is a topic that seems to cause a lot of confusion um, amongst lots of different professional groups, um, including some pharmacists, I will, I will hasten to add. So let's first look at what a licensed drug is. So a licensed drug or licensed medicine is a medicine where the manufacturer has stated that the medicine used in a range of doses for a specific condition is given a license. So let's say, for example, Ramipril for hypertension. So that's a licensed medication. A off-license medication is a medicine that has a UK drug license. So CH Committee of Human Medicines have, have said that this drug can be used and prescribed in the UK and classified it as such. But the practitioner is prescribing it for an indication outside of what the manufacturer says that it can be used for. So, for example, amitriptyline for neuropathic pain. So, very, very common use, but it is not licensed for that use. It is licensed as an antidepressant. And then finally, we have an unlicensed medicine or drug. Now, an unlicensed medication is a medication that does not have a UK license at all. So, Examples of these are specialist medicines that we might have to import from abroad. So probably not that often seen in, in paramedic practice. However, as I was reminded by a colleague the other day, this also includes medicines that are mixed. And I don't know if you recall, there was a little bit of controversy around paramedics mixing salbutamol and ipitropium. I do. Into I do. nebulizers. So essentially... By mixing two different medicines, you are creating a new medicines entity that hasn't got a license. Hence why a lot of trusts put the guidance out to stop doing that. But exam other examples of unlicensed medicines within UK practice that paramedics may come across, and, and again, I think this is important that we push for this change in legislation, are mixing of medicines in syringe drivers for palliative care patients. And as one of my colleagues pointed out, and they work on an intensive care unit, um, they frequently mix medication in syringe drivers for ICU patients who are sedated. So that was a kind of, that's all the case I needed. Um, and I'm not sure about critical care, and I don't know if drugs are routinely mixed in syringes before they're administered. I think that that practice is strongly discouraged. But again, that could be another kind of area where the use of licensed medicines as prescribers may be preferential for patient treatment. That's really interesting, uh, David. And like you said, it's if, if it's happening in one area of medicine uh, with with hopefully good evidence and indeed 
good governance, then there's no reason why it can't happen another. But again, with parameters, looking at uh, which drugs are indeed are safe to uh, to to mix versus versus not, and I think, like I said, there'll be a lot of work there. Um, and again, around the therapeutic window of of uh, of use versus the um, indeed toxic window, and it, the, it would definitely have to be um, tightly tightly governed. But just coming into land on the conversation, David, and looking at um, some take-home messages, um, this is this is a real real potted issue as far as it's it's you know it's 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 both uh, timely and indeed has has uh, had lots of twists and turns along the way. Could you maybe give some take-home messages in, in regards to the current issues and sort of what's been or what indeed is happening in the background from your perspective? Certainly, so. I think the important thing is we will have to be patient with, with the control drugs legislation. I think the, the two major bits of legislation that, that we require change to get full parity, if you like, with our medical pharmacy and nursing colleagues is that we need that full list of controlled drugs and we need the unlicensed medication. Uh, we need that change in law to allow us to do that. I think the way to do this is to prove to everybody that we are a you know mature safe, evidence-based, um, you know, advanced practice, practicing profession that given these, you know, responsibilities with these, with these medications, we will continue, you know, to prescribe safely, effectively, and in the, in the best interests of our patients. In terms of in the background, obviously I'm liaising with Department of Health at the moment about, kind of timelines to get the limited list of controlled drugs through. And once that's done, then I think we need to start looking at what process that we then need to carry out to get the ball rolling. And I'm afraid it's probably going to have to be a public consultation again to get that full list of controlled drugs and unlicensed medicines approved for paramedics. We work quite closely with the other allied health professional bodies, um, such as the podiatrists and the physiotherapists. Um, so that's going on, as I alluded to earlier on, there's that liaison as well with, with the other Royal Colleges, so the Royal College of General Practitioners, Royal College of Emergency Medicine, around, you know, gaining support for that potential list and where they see any pitfalls are. And also, I'm engaged at the moment with the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and we've done work and been invited in to look at things like prescribing guidelines, so the College of Paramedics was invited to help with those, and also with the guidelines around the designated medical practitioner, which again, I'd like to highlight to paramedic prescribers that they will soon become eligible to become mentors for students, designated medical practitioners in their own right. So it's worth having a look over those guidance. Many thanks, Dave. Thanks for your time and efforts. And we will put uh, links in the show notes to everything you've mentioned in the interview. And once again, thanks for your time. If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like, and share. And if you want to meet lots of other risk-taking, rule-bending, and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more.